This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! Perhaps the biggest debate in the markets today is regarding the prospect of inflation. Will the massive fiscal stimulus and money printing of the past year or so, paired with shifting trends in global trade and demographics, result in a secular shift in the disinflationary paradigm we've seen for the past 40 years? To try to answer this question, and to better understand how to protect one's finances should inflation rear its ugly head again, I reached out to James DeVolis, co-portfolio manager of the Horizon Kinetics Inflation Beneficiaries ETF. In this conversation, James shares his framework for approaching the issue of inflation. He also discusses the merits of not only bringing a value-based equity focus to the problem, but also the merits of taking an asset-light approach to the process. We also tackle the risks to the broader equity market posed by all of this. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with James DeVolis. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Really excited. Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I saw the new fund. Um, that uh, Horizon Kinetics, uh, you know, you guys put out, and I thought, man, this is a perfect time to to talk to you about, uh, you know, what the fund is and and uh, the purpose and and you know and and how it makes sense today. But before we get into that, I'd love to just know how did you first get involved, or I guess interested in markets and investing. So I was a finance and econ major in undergrad, but had always been pretty interested in, in business where my parents had their, ran their own business, a small seasonal hotel on the New Jersey shore. And they involved me in, in some of the business operations. And so I, I understood unique economic costs between the variable and fixed costs of our rooms versus the small cafe. And that really translated into my interest to study finance and economics in college. But I was really fortunate where with I was very naive and ended up getting a great position at Horizon directly out of undergrad in 2005. And to show you how naive I was, I truly thought that if you solved for a CAPM model with a weighted average cost of capital and you had all of your inputs right, you knew the precise price of a stock. So um, very abrupt end to that ideology when I started at Horizon with Murray Stahl, Peter Doyle, and Stephen Bregman in 2005, where these are really advocates of the, the Graham and Dodd Buffett philosophy, very tried and true value investors, where first day on the job was, was reading 10Ks. And I don't think they asked me to look at evaluation or any equation or math for, for months, if not the entirety of my first year at the firm. Well, you know, I, I'm curious too <clears throat> about several things there. How did you, uh, I guess, go about getting the job at, at Horizon? Because I, I do have a lot of listeners, I think, that are interested in a career in finance. And they think, how do I, you know, it, the advice I give a lot of people is to find somebody you really admire in the business and, and try and go work for that person. And it seems to me, and I'm, I'm big, uh, you know, admirer of, uh, you know, Stephen's work and, 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 you know, a lot of what uh, you guys put out at Horizon. So I guess, was that, 
did you look at at uh, Horizon and the the founders there and say, hey, these are guys I want to work for, and and or or was there something else that brought you to the company? I'd like to give myself some credit, but honestly, I deserve none. It was it was dumb luck. I had a tangential family uh, member's friend who knew someone who worked in the back office at Horizon. And that's really that's where I started on the trading desk where I was doing order entry, uh, not in the sense that you're trading for profit. It was really a more clerical job. But the partners at Horizon run a very flat organization where they allow you any basically anyone to attend the research meetings and anyone to read their work. But I think that that's a, a kind of a one in a million scenario to end up at a place like Horizon. But I agree if you can figure out who you want to work for, but it's also just it, it, there's no traditional recruiting in asset management or it's very limited um, also for hedge funds. And so it's really just expand your network. And if you can find any commonality with anyone, whether it's I've seen people, but even their their undergrad or excuse me, their high school let alone undergraduate or anything where there's commonality and that person might be willing to have a cup of coffee with you, I guess in normal times or maybe a phone call or a Zoom now, but just plan as many seats as you possibly can and just directionally understand where you want to get to. And I think that that's how I've seen a lot of success stories. So with Horizon being, you know, you you working for Horizon for 15 or so years now, obviously they're thinking, uh, and their methodology, as you mentioned, has shaped your your uh, you know understanding of uh, how to approach the mar- the markets. But you also came into the the markets professionally, like right at the ho- the height of the housing bubble, and leading right into the great financial crisis. So, I, you know, I'm just curious as to how does that experience those first few years in the business? How does that shape the way you think about markets or approach the markets today? I think that I definitely have a far more cautious and I try to bake a lot of room for error into any of my valuations, but it really wasn't that way from the beginning where I was young and the hubris was out of control where I joined Horizon in 05 and I think we doubled AUM in each subsequent years uh, and were just tremendously successful. And you know, Murray nailed the housing dynamic, at least at the the first derivative, which was the home builders were trading as if they were these perpetually high return on equity and high growing companies. But the nuance was that they had been depleting these low cost land banks for many years. So once they had to replace the land at market cost, basically the the margins were going to revert to their historical very low margins. And once, once the cycle turned, obviously the growth was going to turn. But ever since experiencing 08 and 09, which was very difficult for all value investors, my firm included, I've always had a skepticism and maybe too much skepticism. And also coming from my family business where my parents uh, weathered the SNL crisis operating a small family uh, hotel in, in, in a seasonal community that was really devastated by the SNL crisis. So I always look at what could go wrong first instead of trying to look at all of these pie in the sky scenarios, which hasn't been the right approach, at least in the more recent um, market cycle. But I think over complete business cycles, that's probably a prudent approach. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, I've, after interviewing uh, a number of uh, successful, you know, super successful investors and, and studying, you know, a bunch of others, it seems like an appreciation for risk is definitely a, a commonality that, uh, you know, as, as uh, I think, you know, Paul Tudor Jones has probably said, you play, you know, play defense first and let, you know, the, the gains take care of themselves is kind of a, a way to think about it. But <clears throat> I want to dig in, uh, you know, a little bit, well, not a little bit, but this is kind of the, the primary, I think, debate in the markets today is this inflation deflation debate, or I should probably say disinflation, because I don't think we've really seen any any deflation. But it seems like the inflation de, uh, disinflation debate is the center of like pretty much every discussion about markets today. Um Obviously, in starting this, the new fund, um, uh, Horizon, you know, probably sees inflation as a greater risk than most. So I guess what is your process for studying, you know, inflationary dynamics and, you know, how does that process help you arrive at uh, a conclusion as, as to what to anticipate going forward? It's so we are a bottom-up fundamental firm. And so we've very rarely had much of a macro overlay into our thinking, but probably seven, eight years ago, we started looking at valuations and just completely detached from anything that we felt was reasonable. And some things have, have, some businesses have outperformed our expectations, obviously, but we more and more began to believe that this continuation of easy policy was going to have consequences. But I think one of the most salient characteristics of macro investing, which we're not, and you know, I, I, a lot of other people have far more sophisticated views on inflation dynamics, but we wanted to design something where, A, you can benefit regardless of inflation. So there's many binary bets where you have a negative carrying cost or you make a binary bet on CPI or, or different type of rates. But we really were looking for something where you could own this and do just fine under the status quo, but do varying degrees far better under higher scenarios of inflation. And I think that the other nuance of this product is that, and again, without digging into the flaws and the debates that are numerous and plenty on CPI and the construction of CPI, but inflation is this catch-all phrase that people seem to apply to anything relating to a price, which it truly does, at least in a strict definition. But in terms of the way that the Fed and a lot of the derivatives in the market are structured, it purely it purely applies to CPI-linked products and CPI-linked contracts, which aren't isn't necessarily going to be the dynamic of inflation or at least the the leading edge of inflation in our opinion. So that was really the genesis was looking at prices that really seem to be detached from reality and then thinking about where could inflation hit because I, I think it's beyond dispute that we've seen financial asset inflation. So where is where's the next continuation of this and then how do you do it on a full cycle basis where you can compound without making that binary bet on CPI or you know any other price level for that matter. Well I, I, that's fascinating to me that uh, you know to hear you say that you you kind of came to this from a bottom up perspective. It wasn't some big macro call. You know, when I interviewed uh, Stephen uh, a few years ago, I think he was the first person I interviewed for my podcast. Um, 
he the one of the points that he made was that the rise of passive investing cr- creates tremendous opportunities for those willing to look at the stocks that have been ignored by the indexes. Um, so, do you think this this inflation opportunity and these inflation beneficiaries, you know, arises out of this uh, opportunity that's created by passive ignoring a lot of these stocks and sectors? Without a doubt, and the leading edge of inflation, you're already seeing it, has been in various types of commodities, whether it's energy, precious metals, or base metals. And if you were to look at the composition of the S&P 500 today and the relative weightings of what you could truly say to be an inflation beneficiary, whether it's energy or materials, for example, is de minimis compared to what it's been historically. But then even at that, these tend to be large capital intensive multinationals that are engaged in these operations. So by that sense, there's virtually none of these names in in the S&P 500. So I think investors are going to have very, very little exposure to inflation beneficiaries in the index and essentially none in these asset light approach companies that 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 we're focusing upon. Yeah, I mean, just the the differences in sector exposures, you know, between, uh, you know, this fund and your average fund, you know, are dramatic. And and I want to get to the specific companies too, but, um, you know, when you look when you just look at it, uh, I think basic materials, financial services, and energy make up about seventy five percent of uh, you know the inflation beneficiaries fund. Um, the typical fund has less than twenty percent in these in these sectors, so uh, you know it's positioned dramatically differently. Uh, is it just the? Ca- I mean, when I think about it, I, I, I go, "Hey, you know, these are clearly sectors." I mean, think financial services, right? Have been a dramatic underperformer, even well until very recently, but. You know, you could think about until last summer into the fall, financial service, the yield curve looked like it was poised to, to really start taking off. And that should be beneficial to these. But energy, incredibly, you know, I mean, there's no exposure to energy in, in any of the, the major indexes anymore. These, I mean, appear to me to be value, terrific value opportunities, but also some of the sectors that just by chance would happen to be inflation beneficiaries. So, you know, I guess my question is how much of that is you know just pursuing these value opportunities and how much of is it you know specifically this kind of macro call is it just kind of fortuitous that it's that it uh, would happen to benefit from inflation yeah that brings up a really good point which is that everything that we own is valued and justified on a fundamental bottom-up basis and that's the biggest shortcoming of passive investing where You've had guests that have done exhaustive work on this, and you've had Steve and seen Stephen Murray's work, where I think it's creating an incredibly fragile market structure. But the opportunity is a lot of these sectors are ignored, but I think part of the issue is also that people have had a really miserable experience in a lot of these stocks. And a lot of that has to do with, A, the management of these companies, but B, the nature of these businesses, meaning the capital intensity, both in the standpoint of spending a lot of working and utilizing a lot of working capital to make a return, but then also having a low inherent return on assets that you need to lever up with debt financing in order to create an attractive return on equity. But investors over the past 10 years have had a miserable experience if you went into upstream 
uh, EMP oil and gas producers or the average gold mining company and certainly the, the average base metals mining company where there were a lot of nuances within each of these where the, the base metal companies all just expanded wildly and very irresponsibly in the lead up to the 0809 financial crisis by virtue of the, the, Chinese, the China-driven EM growth, which proved to be very unsustainable. Uh, the gold miners all had tremendous success going up to the gold peak in 2011, where they were given a tremendous amount of capital and expanded very irresponsibly and not too dissimilar with the energy companies where it seems like a long time ago, but July 08, we had $140 crude. And then, you know, we've had a lot of volatility in these markets, but regardless of management and the industries at large continuously pouring all of this supply in and investors' willingness to basically fund these businesses, the capital intensity, the balance sheet risk, and then the reinvestment requirements have resulted in a very, very poor uh, experience. So that's why when we look at these, we've actually been focusing for, in my case, since I started at the firm and in the case of the, the founding partners, for me, 15 years, for, for these guys, 30 plus years in these asset light companies that just so happen to be tremendous values, but exposed to these inflationary and markets. Yeah. And it, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the gold miners too, because to me last year, and I was talking with my friend, Eric Cinnamon about this, that the last summer really into the fall, the energy stocks felt very much like the gold miners did in, in late 15 and, and early 16, where a lot of them were just trading at, you know, far below liquidation value. Um, you know, I mean, tangible, you know, 30, 40% of tangible book value in some cases for the gold miners back then. And, and uh, you know, I mean, a, as a value investor, it's been interesting to kind of see these opportunities arising in things that, you know, I think people have to be uh, extrapolating the disinflationary trends of the last 40 years, you know, indefinitely into the future to, to even generate prices as low as that we've seen in those sectors. Um I guess, you know, what I'm thinking now is, is, okay, these are where, this is where value has been. Um, and, and in some respect, the fact that investors are extrapolating disinflation into the future creates the opportunity for these inflationary beneficiaries. Um, I guess if, if that's the case, that inflation is, is, uh, we're, we're, we are seeing a, new, a paradigm shift, um, from disinflation to inflation. In terms of asset classes, equity sectors, what I mean, you've probably done the work to see what are the best opportunities in terms of asset classes and equity sectors generally uh, for investors to kind of uh, focus on. Yeah, the, one of the biggest challenges today with investing for "quote unquote" inflation is that there's a huge data availability problem because we haven't had true consumer price inflation since the let's say it started in the late 60s into into the early 80s and that was a very very different global economy and a very different global financial system in terms of the interconnectedness of global markets and currencies and rates but also you started off at, at a very different dynamic in terms of where budgets were where deficits were and then where absolute and nominal rates were so i don't think there's there there's it's basically unmodelable where we're at today. But 
I think one thing that is almost a certainty is that you're not going to do well in fixed income. I think you know, fixed income, you can almost mathematically prove is not going to be a good investment, even under moderate inflation, certainly if you're in the ag. And you know, if you look last year, at one point you were up 25% in the long-term bond if you look at the TLT ETF. And since then, you've retraced 17%. And that shows you just the duration sensitivity of the of, of fixed income and what just a very modest move in the yield curve can do. But tips as of last night, you know, I, I looked at a generic, a Jan 15, 2031 uh, U.S. Uh, Treasury tip where the gross yield was negative 85 basis points. So given that you are no matter what, you're basically going to get, if you hold that to maturity, you're going to have a negative real yield if held to maturity. So the bet here is you buy a tip thinking that inflation expectations are going to spike. Therefore, you can get this short-term gain. But part of the problem with that is right now you're paying about an 80 basis point premium based on the current break-even relative to the most recent uh, annualized inflation number. But it's not that simple because you have two other factors influencing what the price is going to do. One, what is the premium going to look like relative to trailing inflation? So the expectation versus versus current, but also the tip is always going to be anchored by the yield on the 10-year. So if the 10-year moves more than CPI, you can be directionally right on inflation and actually lose money. Um, you know, Obviously, a lot of sophisticated people are putting on steepener trades where you're betting you know, a, a steeper yield between the 10-2, which it seems like right now with how flat the yield curve is, that would help. And then other people do it with leverage. But you know, a lot of people that intuitively think, hey, I'll just buy a TIPS or I'll buy a TIPS ETF, that's really not going to get you much of anywhere under most scenarios that we look at. So then when we look at what other companies can benefit from inflation, I, I was you know, courtesy of Michael Burry, I, he just posted the, the 1980 Berkshire Hathaway chairman's letter from Warren Buffett. And he speaks at length about the dynamics of inflation as a tax. But I think one of the most salient uh, points that, that Warren Buffett made in 1980 is that for your, the capital of the business to be truly indexed, the return on equity must rise, meaning that business earnings have to go up in proportion to the price level, but without any requirement for additional working capital or um, CapEx. And that's going to be really, really difficult for most companies, even a lot of these technology companies and companies that, that have a ton of operating leverage, a ton of pricing, and you know, theoretically have, have tremendous scale. That's a really difficult dynamic to, to focus on. So to go back and looking at equities, because I think fixed income is just you know a, a, a minefield. Uh, you know, one of my colleagues calls it um, all, all risk and no return. But again, when you go back and look at these areas that historically, these finite, high quality, hard assets is really what we look at. And whether it's land or royalties or precious metals, you're looking at the highest quality, the lowest variable cost, so on and so forth. And if you have a very, very aggressive, strong opinion that let's say gold is going to go to 2,500, you should buy the most leveraged 
junior miner that's not producing yet, I mean, I would say still stay with good jurisdiction, uh, geopolitical and, and management. But you know, that's your big call option where you can make a huge you know, binary return. But if you're not 100% confident in inflation or the underlying drivers of any of these you know, what we call inflation vectors. So the, the end market, whether it be a, a niche energy, land, um, precious metal, any of these different markets, um, the better way to really play this for the long term is to play it through these asset light businesses where they can continuously reinvest capital at higher rates. In many cases, they have tremendous operating leverage and very low amount of balance sheet leverage. So you know, we look at it in terms of figure out where in the equity markets you want to be, but then find the advantage business models with good management and then trading at good valuations. Interesting. And I really appreciate that you say that uh, it's really difficult, in fact, unmodelable to understand, um, you know, how best to protect yourself against inflation. Because, you know, you, you look, we look back at, you know, how many really inflationary episodes have we had in in modern times and 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 uh will his, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat so if we look back and say you know from 1968 to 81 you know these are the things you wanted to own well that that might you know not help us very much in determining what uh what is uh you know going to work if inflation you know picks up again going forward um and I, I also appreciate that you know you're you're saying, hey, we're going to use um, the traditional kind of margin of safety process uh, in analyzing securities to try and protect against those risks that we don't appreciate. Um, one of the things that you know that that I think about when I'm when I listen to you talk about all this stuff is that you know many people are utilizing investment strategies today that, uh, you know, are based on a back test that goes back 20 years or even 40 years and doesn't include any inflationary type of dynamic at all. Um, do you see that as a risk that, you know, there just is tons of tons of money out there kind of leveraged to back tests that are completely predicated on disinflation? Yeah, it's really concerning and it's really scary, especially people that are looking at the realized vol in equities and inherently volatile asset classes where I still remember in one of my first years at our firm when we were meeting with a large endowment or pension fund and they asked about us managing volatility and, and one of our my partners said, there's a certain amount of volatility that you have to accept as as the, the cost of entry into a higher returning asset. So, so much of the financial services industry is spent just trying to smooth or the illusion of smoothing volatility or eliminating volatility. And, you know, obviously, if you don't have to mark to market, that's a huge advantage to just say, I have no vol. Um, but the, these back tests are very dangerous given the preconditions that we're experiencing today are really unprecedented. And, you know, one thing that I was somewhat in the dark about was it seems like all of these financial institutions that are maybe not the most sophisticated uh, people operating them are basically operating these risk parity strategies um, to basically, you know, mimic like an all weather type of 
type of strat type of strategy where they're you know bouncing in and out of asset classes based on realized vol and trading and trailing returns and it seems like eventually if everybody's marching to the same beat of the same drummer following the same vol tail wagging the dog type of numbers you're setting up for a very very fragile market structure especially when you add in the passive and then the momentum and, and you're seeing it you know day in and day out. I mean, this morning and then look at where we came from this morning to where we're at today. So, you know, the best word I can think of to describe everything is just fragile. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's such a great point too, because it makes me think of what we saw in, in GameStop, right? To me, I was looking at some of these stocks, you know, the Bed Bath & Beyond is one in particular I was looking at that I, you know, had almost a hundred percent of the float sold short. It was trading at a fraction of its liquidation value in my view. And I thought, how could, you know, GameStop's another good example of a stock that, you know, got so cheap, it was so overly shorted. You make the point that a lot of these funds are optimizing for volatility and, you know, and what have you. To me, the only way that you can, you can stay short something where 100% of the float or more, in the case of GameStop, is sold short, is you've just extrapolated the last, you know, five years of returns, you know, out for the next five years. I mean, to, to look at the risk of being short something that is so such a hugely crowded trade to me is just kind of maybe representative of some of these other trends that have been extrapolated, like, you know, not necessarily being 140% short, you know, an individual stock, but you're so highly leveraged to a trend that has gone so far beyond, um, you know, where, where it should have been able to, where it should have reversed that, uh, you know, the, the, the the eventual reversals can be very, very dramatic in kind of a, a GameStop type of fashion. Would you think that's, I mean, what do you think? Do you see kind of the same type of risks in a lot of these trades? I do. And you know, I, I think one of the most interesting nuances of the, the hedge fund industry as it's operated today is think of probably you could say Jim Chanos is easily one of the top five short sellers of all time. And all he looks to do is basically break even on his shorts over a longer period of time, say five to seven years. And then if he can basically use that to margin and double his long, you basically, you basically get double the S&P with half the ball. And I think that that's the model that a lot of these shops are basically trying to emulate. And obviously, there's a, there's a lot of different nuances. But when everybody's basically managing around a vol number, it, it creates excesses to the upside and to the downside. And you know, I, I could certainly see some of these names where it's every single – some of these names, I, I won't get into specific names, but I think you could guess that just keep going up beyond any – semblance of reality. And I just keep thinking the next time that there's a reasonable down day, there's just an air gap. There's just no one there left to buy it. But then seemingly, you know, it, it comes back in. So market structure is really an enigma today. And I think that GameStop put a mic, a microscope on it where you know, there's a lot of guys out there that study the, the gamma and all of these other different types of dealer hedging, where again, tail wagging the dog if with options dealers then having to cover and then buy the underlying and then there's momentum and then there's these people with VAR models and risk parity models and I just market structure it just does not seem like there's any such thing as price discovery whatsoever at least in the short term. Yeah. Yeah. And I you know I guess 
I, I, the, the analogy I'm trying to make is I think, you know, you had to have some kind of algorithms. You know, I, that was the only way I could try and explain it because I don't think a rational person would be willing to short something where 100% of the float is, is sold short. It has to be algorithms that are looking at, okay, this stock, you know, has trended this direction over this long. We can probably extrapolate that for the next year or two or, or what have you, whatever the time period is. I, I'm just curious. To, I, I have to imagine that there are similar similar strategies out there, and maybe risk parity is one of them, that looks at the last 20 years or 40 years of disinflation and uh, you know has extrapolated that out into the future. And that's the only reason that allows them to get so leveraged towards these trades that benefit from falling interest rates or falling inflationary trends. Um, it's just, yeah, I, you know, I, I think you probably addressed it through the risk parity question, but I, I just imagine there have to be other strategies out there that are that are similarly at at risk to, um, you know, a, a change in in the inflation paradigm. I, let's get into, I, you know, speaking of inflation, and you brought up the gold price. Um, what are your views on gold? It looks like in the fund, you guys are primarily focused on the royalty companies rather than the mining stocks directly. Is that because you have more of a neutral view on gold itself or or why is that? We think that basically you know, anything fiat is is going to come into question over the next couple of years where – just like you said, no one rationally could be shorting something at a third of tangible book with 100% short interest. Obviously, we know who it is and we know different dynamics are at play, but what rational free market participant would be buying a, a 10-year U.S. Treasury at, at slightly over 100 basis points today when you know, everybody seems to be thinking we're at, we're going to be running at two percent inflation, and obviously the the level of insanity gets even higher when you extrapolate that into different. Uh, I haven't looked lately what the the latest number of the global sovereign debt with uh, negative yield to maturities are, but I think it's somewhere in the vicinity of seventeen trillion. So obviously there are non fundamental forces at play that are influencing that, and. To the extent that the average saver cannot and will not lend their money to the government at 1% a year, 0% a year, negative whatever in real terms, they're going to look for other stores of value. And I think one of the most tried and true stores of value throughout hundreds and hundreds of years has been gold. So there's also the fact that the industry was starved of capital. So you saw basically a lot of these miners and blow up uh, after really kind of going aggressively into the 2011 gold peak where, you know, I have an interesting statistic and these numbers were run through yesterday, but since the August uh, 2011 gold peak uh, through yesterday, uh, and this was since through 2011, gold was down 6% over that, over that full period. The uh, GDX, the, the the gold miners index, was down forty eight percent over that period, and Franco Nevada, the largest and most liquid gold royalty company, was up one hundred and sixty percent. And there were so Franco's assets outperformed, but also they're able to allocate capital most efficiently and most effectively at the bottom of the cycle. At the top of the cycle, at two thousand an ounce. Nobody's calling up Franco Nevada where they need financing to basically throw slap a royalty on top of their mine to, to get some extra capital in and, and complete the mine. 
And this dynamic really enables these businesses to compound over time also, because if you look at the reserve life of a Franco Nevada, it's anywhere from two to three times that of the average gold miner. So you get a lot more duration in the asset base. You have the the low asset intensity and then the ability to basically capitalize through a full market cycle. So I would say personally and as a firm where we're certainly um, pragmatic about the the price of gold, I mean, certainly short term, it's impossible to say, but we really love the royalty business model to play this over many business cycles. So we're not trying to basically make a one-time trade and say, you know, buy gold to hedge inflation today. These, these businesses, you know, if bought and managed correctly can really be permanent allocations into your broader asset allocation mix. And so you know, maybe for the audience's benefit, could you explain the royalty business model a little bit, you know, more and and how you go, how you think about valuations uh, for these companies? Sure, and you know, I'll I'll caveat it and say that there's a fairly different business model between energy royalties and precious metals, where most precious metals royalties are actually what are called streaming agreements, and to simplify it. Uh, let's assume a gold miner needs to build a mine and they require $100 million to do that, but it's going to take three years until they have first gold. If you take on conventional financing, it, historically, it would have a very high cash interest coupon rate, which if you even had the cash, you're certainly not going to have cash from operations. It would be prohibitive. So a stream would basically say, and I'll give you the cash up front and then for the life of the mine, there's a fixed proportion of gold, whether it be an absolute amount of ounces, a percentage. And these have gotten very complex now where there's waterfalls and caps and, and limits and different duration. But to simplify, let's say for the life of the mine, I get 15, 15% of all of your production. But if gold's trading at 1800, I buy it from you at 300. So it's a deeply in the money option on all of this production. And so basically when they underwrite, they're underwriting two things. One, okay, what's the interest rate that I'm going to underwrite at under flat or static gold pricing? But one of the more difficult components of valuing these companies is that in many cases, these royalty agreements compose the entire mine plan. So in the case of Franco Nevada, if this mine is an open pit mine in a vein in the Andes Mountains, and this is the first mine, they're going to try to structure these where they basically have a call option on any other expansions of that mine. So Pierre Lassonde is famous for saying, where do you find gold? And a lot of geologists and, and people in the audience would give him these highly technical answers. And he said, you know, you might be right, you might be wrong, but you find gold where you already found it. So expand the mine down the road, uh, down the vein you know, on the surface, but also now at these prices and with technology, you can also do subsurface mining where you can, you can make money even you know, below a thousand an ounce. So there's this call option on the additional production that is, is pretty hard to value. But so if you look at these NAV numbers that people put out, they, you know, they might use a lower discount rate in order to justify the quality of the business. And you know, commonly people will say that the, the, these companies traded a premium to NAV. But I think it doesn't consider a couple things. One, let's just think of the price of gold. 
if you looked at the throughput and the, the massive reserve base that is within Franco or Wheaton's portfolio, if you were to take all of that gold over the next 50 years of potential production and call up an investment bank and say, can you quote me an option to basically have upside on all of this gold over the next 40 years using a Black-Scholes model, I think their computer would break. So how do you value that? But then also, how do you value the known unknown, which is the expansion plan in the mines itself, where since Franco reemerges a public company, uh, I, th- I think it was in the end of 2007, um, if you looked at what their proved and probable reserves were on that day, forget you know the other measures of reserves, they've extracted all of that from that, ex- from that original asset base. I'm not including any new additions to the assets. They've extinguished all of the proven and probable and replaced all of it and then some. So now they have more proved and probable from that original asset base after extracting everything that they said was there back in uh, in, in 2007. So there's a lot of nuances to these companies where we make certain assumptions about gold prices, silver prices, production levels, and then looking out into the future. And obviously, there's some assumptions about the management's ability to reinvest that capital. Energy is a little bit more simple because instead of providing financing to a mine, Energy royalties, and this also tends to be the case with uh, iron ore and other base metal royalties that you'll see in the portfolio, is a function of land ownership. So a royalty in its truest sense is basically just a proportionate percentage of the realized uh, product, which which is extracted. Um, In many cases, it's completely free and clear of any operating expenses or any proportionate costs whatsoever. Um, in some cases, there's some minor ad valorem tax participation, but in that case, it's, it's fairly easy because with technology today, it's fairly easy. So with Texas Pacific Land Trust, they RS Energy audited and gave them what I think is a fairly conservative estimate of the recoverable resource under their land. So if you make a, a few assumptions about what other companies are going to spend to extract that oil and gas prices of oil and gas, and then the timeline for it to be extracted, you basically just do a DCF back to present day. And you know we're going to work, depending on our confidence level, anywhere from a 7.5% to a 12.5% discount rate. So you know the beauty of that is if you're right, not only are you buying it at a discount, but if it goes to fair value, you're compounding somewhere between that range for many, many years, which obviously is not an easy number to hit in this market. So really great business model where the operating metrics of these companies actually compare favorably to the leading tech companies in the world where you can see energy royalties with 80 to 90% operating margins. And similar with the gold guides, you can see anywhere from 45 to 65% operating margins. And then as I mentioned, they have these very, very vast reserve bases. They can convert almost all of that into free cash flow. And and so that I mean that to me is, is the argument for these asset like companies is that yeah they have huge returns on um, you know invested capital and uh, you know I, I also love to hear you say I just got to come back to it you said you know using the discount rate in your models of a you know twelve percent plus 
I was reading something in the Wall Street Journal and they were talking about, you know, interest rate risk in the equity market. And they said, you know, a lot of analysts use the the 10 year note yield, uh, you know, as in their discount models. <laughs> and I thought, oh my, you know, the 65 basis points a few months ago. I, yeah, you just come up with in, incredibly ridiculous valuations for equities. And I guess it probably helps to explain some of the valuations we're seeing. But, um, but yeah, you know, using a, you know, a 12%. It, you know, like you said, if you're right, you you generate terrific returns. If you're wrong, you know it's that margin of safety concept, right? Uh, you know, I, how much risk did I actually take? Uh, you know, by buying something at uh, at a, a you know at a, a discount. Um, so we've been talking about you know the security selection process and, and actually yeah, looking at the individual stocks. It's clear you know that it's asset light on the uh, you know on that gold side. Um, is it, is that true for the, the energy side throughout the portfolio also, or are you, or, or is there real exposure there to actual, you know, exp- exploration production companies, or is it, you know, like you said, more on the asset light side there too? Yeah. And so this is one thing I'll, I'll kind of delve deeper into, but you know, the one bucket of the fund is in these direct beneficiaries where they have the direct exposure to the inflation vector and whether it be energy or precious metals or base metals or in some cases land. But in every example, somebody else is spending all of the money for you to make the money. So with energy, in the case of Texas Pacific, it's Chevron spending 10, 15, 20 million dollars per well and then TPL basically just skimming their portion right off the top. Same thing with Franco Nevada, where you know mega multinational gold miners and even some diversified uh, base metals that are doing copper, they'll get a stream where these guys are spending the billions of dollars and they just get the royalty right off the top. The second bucket of the fund, which is you know almost the exact same size as the direct beneficiaries, is what I call the indirect beneficiaries, where they're capital light businesses with indirect exposure to these inflation vectors. And I think a great example are financial exchanges where, for example, the Intercontinental Exchange or the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, you know, basically all they are are supercomputers that are matching buy and sell volumes. And then obviously they have the clearinghouse and data business as well. But if you think about what would happen in an inflationary cycle, you would have tremendous interest rate volatility and the requirement for people to hedge out their rates. You would have tremendous currency volatility. And presumably, you would have a lot of movement within both hard and soft commodities. So your energy, your metals, your precious, and then also in the softs, whether it's ag and some of these other commodities. And these exchanges, they thrive on volume. And volatility is the, is the best friend to volume. So in an inflationary cycle, imagine you know, rates, currencies, oil, cotton, hog bellies, soybeans, gold, copper, all of this stuff having tremendous movement and volatility, which requires both hedging and speculation. And then these supercomputers, what do they need to do to process another trillion dollars of volume? You know, Maybe you plug in another server. So the operating margins there are enormous. And in a sense, they're actually counter-cyclical. So the market has vol and you have all of these destabilizing forces where you know, they're having the best year in their history. While I would imagine that you know, a blowout in the 10-year or a blowout in risk and, and currencies would be 
you know, pretty harmful to the broader equity market where, you know, in, uh, when John Hussman was on, I thought it was, you know, fascinating where he calculates the duration. I've tried to do this myself and, 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 you know, kept getting stuck, but he calculates the duration on the S and P 500 of 60. So you sensitize that to a hundred basis point move. If people actually were using this, you know, 10 year as a benchmark, I mean, it's ugly. 60 years of duration, it would be really ugly. Yeah. Um, but then some of these other indirect companies, so, you know, data companies where they have exposure to these inflationary end markets where, you know, they're in the middle of probably being bought by S&P, but IHS market where you know, their biggest customers are in credit markets, are in energy, are in mining, uh, and then are in automotive OEMs. So again, as those businesses fly, thrive and flourish, they have more and more volume, more and more pricing power, and, and a lot of that flows to the to the bottom line because it's really just uh, you know a financial database. And you know, similar industries with insurance, with various analytics, where you know I don't know if you've seen what's happened to insurance underwriting the underwriting premium cycle, both in terms of volume and premiums. If you look at the Marsh and McLennan index, um, so. You know other ways to play asset light within financial services, and and you know, so that's was exchanges and data. But Marsh McLennan brings up a great example with brokers. So any industry where there's an inflationary end market and there's higher volume and higher pricing, the broker just takes a cut. So Marsh McLennan and insurance, or Clarkson and shipping. Um, you know, one last one that I think is also worth touching on is. A lot of products that do try to use equity that don't go into these commodity areas for inflation are global listed infrastructure and real estate. But I would argue they've already been dramatically inflated by financial asset inflation, where how much can you really benefit from a three or 4% inflation number if you're going into a project or a building at you know, a three or 4% cap rate? Chances are any increase in cash flow would be offset by your cap rate expanding. But what about owning an asset light through somebody like Brookfield Asset Management, where they have co-investments within the products where there's a big book value component of NAV, but there's also, you're the GP on this enormous pool of both permanent and semi-permanent capital as the, the global leader in real, real estate and infrastructure investing, where you know, much happier to basically have that operating leverage than tying up a ton of capital in a bridge or a port or you know an apartment building. So I think that second bucket of indirect beneficiaries is really interesting that not a lot of people have appreciation for the true drivers of these businesses and certainly under inflation. Listening to you, you know, discuss these individual, uh, you know, stocks, individual opportunities, and then also the the framework, I guess, or the the uh, the the purpose of the asset light kind of focus, makes me think of um, another interview I did a couple of years ago with Diego Perillo. He talks about bubbles and anti bubbles, and one of the anti bubbles that he's you know written about is volatility and how you know volatility has been suppressed. Uh, but another one I think of an anti-bubble is probably inflation, um, you know, things that have been, uh, you know, uh, that are kind of the, the inverse of, of the bubble in, um, you know, the bond market is, uh, you know, I, if disinflation is the, is the bubble, inflation is the anti-bubble. But, you know, even so to, from that standpoint, it seems to me this, this portfolio is essentially positioned to take advantage 
of these these anti-bubbles in volatility and inflation at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good way to put it. And I, you know, I I love Diego and have followed a lot of his work over the years. And it's it's easy when you're looking back at five year numbers to pat yourself on the back. And you know, I, I can't tell you how many I mean how many people are on Twitter boasting their 50, 80, 100, 300 percent returns last year where you know, rising tide lifts all ships, especially if you were kind of in the zeitgeist names. And, you know, I, I think some of these green technology stocks, you know, both in terms of re- any, anything in the renewable sphere. And I don't know if it's because of ESG. I don't know if it's because of the zeitgeist, but some of these valuations make the cannabis bubble of a few years ago, both in terms of the valuation, but also the total market cap look like nothing. And so when you think of it in, in the context of an anti-bubble, what happens to this portfolio and what happens to these types of stocks on a fundamental basis where they could hold up, if not thrive, and a lot of other companies would be in, in really tough shape? Yeah, and that's that's what I was thinking about while you were speaking You know, before was that, you know, a lot of people ask me, okay, great. You know, if commodities are so cheap relative to financial assets, how do I get exposure? And it's difficult to own commodities directly. Um, and so you want to focus on, you know, maybe commodity focused equities, but you've taken it another step, which is, okay, let's, let's focus on asset light, uh, commodity focused or commodity related equities because they'll benefit from the volume. I mean, the, traditionally just commodity focused equities will be highly leveraged to whatever the cycle in that underlying commodity is but these asset light versions like you've been you know saying for half an hour or so now you know the real benefit of these <clears throat> is that they're not necessarily as leveraged to the underlying commodity cycle so much as they can take advantage of the uh, the volatility in those cycles yeah, and particularly the exchanges will do just phenomenally well with volatility, but then also a lot of the royalty companies where Franco and Wheaton have been and some of the more modern, well-managed uh, energy royalty companies, they they thrive on volatility where they can then put capital to work in the case of the, the precious metals investing in companies that need money to help them finance mines. And in the case of the energy royalties, they can buy up royalties from stress or distressed sellers where there's a there's still a tremendous market size of energy royalties that are private and stranded or semi-stranded, meaning a a large family owner or a private equity owner or some time sensitive holder that would probably want some sort of exit. So I think that this these types of assets are really going to mature and grow the entire market size really markedly in this next cycle because of the quality and all of these these characteristics that we have spoken about um, with these um, types of asset-like business models. Yeah. And so, you know, the other thing looking at at the portfolio, um, you know, in terms of portfolio construction, um, it, t- it appears to be, you know, pretty, pretty highly focused into a smaller number of names. What's the attitude towards uh, diversification? <laughs> So we right now we have about thirty five names, and um, you know typically our average our, our max position size at cost will be five percent. Minimum would be anywhere from one to two, uh, and that's a function of conviction uh, as well as liquidity. And historically, at Horizon, we've always liked to allow our our portfolios to concentrate within our best ideas, but. 
I think within the context uh, of an exchange-traded fund, an active ETF, we'd like to be a bit more diversified, um, both in terms of names and also we really want to spread it out and try to touch a lot of these inflationary end markets that we think are important to have exposure to, which you know actually brings up a good point about the third bucket in the fund, because there are really interesting niche markets that we want exposure to, but it's almost impossible to get asset light exposure. So we just look for advantage business models. And this is going to be a smaller component, but let's call it 10%, where we either just love the business model and the end market, or there's just such a tremendous asymmetry in um, the return profile that we're willing to go in something that's a bit more asset intensive. And I think I think a quick example is is agriculture. It's almost impossible to get asset light exposure to ag, but if you could look at some of these really interesting grain processors, so think ADM for Archer Daniels Midland. Uh, and then also within ag, something that has a wide outcome where if you do get a commodity cycle and an ag cycle, certain fertilizer companies could really have many, many multiples of growth. So you know, there there is a willingness to go into those businesses as well. And, you know, another thing I noticed from the, the portfolio is it looks like the biggest underweights uh, are in consumer cyclical, communication services, industrials, technology. Um, is that more of an inflation call or a valuation call or a little bit of both? I think it's a lot of it has to do with we want tangible assets that are finite, where the a lot of the pricing power and a lot of the leverage of these businesses to have the ability to benefit from inflation is going to result is going to basically be a function of them having a finite asset and the ability to scale upon that physical asset so you know one of the things we we focus on internally here in other in other products is quote hard assets and it's really difficult to push price in a lot of those industries that you mentioned. A lot are very capital intensive, uh, and it's somewhat ambiguous how even some of the really, really high quality businesses would perform in inflation by virtue of that duration, where hard to argue that Microsoft wouldn't be able to push cost. But if you look at the multiples and then you look at, okay, how does that affect their SG&A because wages are going to have to go up? How does it affect their cost of capital? How does it affect the valuation? So uh, it's it's more a function of kind of how the businesses are structured and how they could benefit from this earlier stage of inflation where I do think, you know, going back to somewhat of a macro lens, the leading edge of inflation today, you're seeing it in these finite assets. And I think I'm not sure if you've discussed it on other podcasts, but if you look at these collectibles, the, these finite assets, whether it's fine art or now you're seeing these records being broken in art auctions, but also rare wines and rare whiskeys and baseball cards and collectible autos. So that's kind of that inflationary store of value with something that's finite that we really want to basically have that exposure to. And, you know, it, it's interesting to me. I'm, I'm glad you brought up you know, Microsoft. You're also the co-manager of the Kinetics Internet Fund, right? Yes. So I, I manage that under Murray, but yes, I'm, I'm on that fund as well. Okay. Yeah. And, and so when I look at the holdings in that fund, um, it's not necessarily what you would imagine the typical internet fund holding. You know, and I look at some of the, yeah. you know, the, the competing funds. 
Is that because you're concerned about, you know, valuations duration in a lot of these names and especially in the growth category? Yeah. And let me give you a little bit of history where the internet fund, they basically created out of the firm long before I joined in the late 1990s. And, you know, they caught lightning in a bottle there where then, you know, that was you know, the, the first iteration of what we're living through now. And you know, guys that were around back then tell me that it was probably, this is actually bordering on more painful as a value manager than back then. Because we obviously, we have, our core business was value stocks, whereas we had that one product where, you know, we noticed this secular growth. But they've said the duration and magnitude of this cycle are more painful than 99. So people that haven't been through both, I think it's, it's an interesting data point. But even within the context of recognizing the enormous potential of the internet, the, the 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 managers and then the partners at the firm did not want to go into these companies that really had um, you know no scalable tangible or excuse me no tangible value add or, or business model. So they weren't buying hardware or components. They weren't buying um, you know pets.com or whatever the other whatever the other uh, names were back then. They were more focusing on okay, what companies can benefit from connectivity where we can somewhat think about this from a valuation perspective. And they ended up having tremendous, tremendous returns early on and then holding a lot of cash towards the end, which then you know, didn't, didn't completely isolate the fund from the eventual drawdown. But it's always had that mentality of kind of inverting the conventional wisdom. And I'd say 100% look at our firm as contrarians and look at, okay, what's a contrarian approach with how I can play this on risk-adjusted terms? Gotcha. I mean, it's, yeah, it just strikes me as, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, a traditional value investor would approach the internet sector, what would it look like? Well, just look at the fund and you'll get a good idea. Uh, and and it, it is definitely contrarian, especially within that sector. Uh, I'm going to totally change gears here. <clears throat> Between co-managing the two funds, um, you know, I, I think you probably managed, you know, a number of separate accounts or co-manage also. Is there anything you do kind of outside of that to get away from the markets, achieve a sort of like a mental reset? Yeah, I, you know, it's been really, really difficult uh, during COVID here being on lockdown. And uh, I have a, a young daughter and, you know, she's been kind of the, the greatest experience through this lockdown. And, you know, fortunately, she's a little bit too young to understand what's going on. But I realized a couple of years ago, I got caught up with all of my reading, and I love to read, was financial. I was basically reading biographies and you know every all of these next great finance books. And so I really took it upon myself to start looking into things that stimulate other parts of the brain, if you will. And so you know, things that I've, through COVID, I've explored that I've really been interested in fascinating with where I grew up on, on the ocean in, in southern New Jersey. So I've been buying every book I can get my hand on. On, on in, in well, it's 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 not it's nonfiction, but 
very interesting historical accounts of pirates and whaling and these old historical accounts and um, also kind of a new fascination for wine and researching winemaking and, and different culture and excuse me, different climates and, and terroirs and, and, and things like that, where I think it's really important to, you know, diversify your mind. Um, but then also beyond that, just physical activity. I'm, I'm an avid runner and, and yoga and a, a very bad, but aspiring golfer. <laughs> You know, I, I, it's funny you say that. I'm the opposite. I've been playing golf for years, and I've just started running. And uh, you know, I've, I, I'm, I'm getting addicted to that runner's high. Uh, you know, just you know, I run three miles or something. You know, not not a fast pace or anything, but uh, yeah, it just it feels great, especially during COVID. And, and uh, you know, there, so there has been a silver lining through the whole pandemic, which is more time with loved ones, uh, and uh, you know, kind of branching out into these other interests. Uh, you know, James, where, where, for people who want to keep up with your ideas with horizons, you know, uh, work, where, where can they, uh, where can they do that? Sure. So just our website's a really great resource where we, I, I, I should have mentioned this before, but the partners in my firm have been, are very generous where they write thousands and thousands of pages of research a year. And, they believe that the best way to market our firm is to offer some of that for free on our website. And I think that there's a real treasure trove of really interesting thinking, mostly from Murray Stahl on a number of comp, a number of topics that we've discussed today, as well as many more. Um, and then w- within that, there's also a subpage for the, the new fund, uh, the tickers INFL on the NYSE, which is the Horizon Inflation Beneficiaries Fund. Perfect. Yeah. And I, I highly recommend, um, you know, all, all everything that you guys put out on the website. I'm, I'm an avid reader of it all. So James, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We're going to have to come back maybe in a, in a year or two and kind of see how the uh, economic and environment has changed and how the portfolio has fared. Yeah, this was great. And, you know, I feel like we could have gone on for a couple more hours, but uh, yeah, I look forward to doing this again. Uh, and thanks again for having me. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.